Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebears. Episode 13, Christine de Pizan. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed last episode with Christian Giebert, and hopefully I'll have more guests on the show in the future. But I'm very excited about today's episode, because Christine is one of the people that first inspired me to start this podcast. So Christine is very fascinating in many different ways. Remember Hrosvitha, way back in episode 8? Well, Hrosvitha was the first Christian playwright, and the first woman playwright, at least that we know of, which is pretty impressive. Well, Christine is also impressive, because she is the first professional female writer of the Middle Ages. And depending on how you define it, she's the first professional writer of the Middle Ages, period. She's also unique because she talks freely about her own experiences and her own life, something that's really not that common in this period. So Christine was born in 1364, while our friend Machaut was still alive. So let's remember a little bit of what's happening in the world right now. Remember, the 1300s, as we mentioned last time, is often considered to be basically a disaster. In fact, one renowned historian, Barbara Tuckman, wrote a famous book called The Distant Mirror, the Calamitous 14th Century. It's not a great name for your century, but there are several reasons for this. Remember back in Louis IX's time, Europe was kind of on the up and up. And while the Crusades were a severe distraction, as we saw with him, trade was going well. And there was a renewed piety and faith in the church because of people like Francis of Assisi. And the papacy during that time was run by several capable, though certainly not perfect, men. Europe in general was doing pretty well. But in the 1300s, many of these good things came crashing down. One of the first major problems was something we mentioned a little bit when talking about Louis IX, and that is the relationship of England and France. So remember, there was a really weird relationship between these two countries during this time. And this was because the king of England was, at the same time, a king and a duke. He was an independent king on his own land in the British Islands, but he also controlled some territory in France. Except in that land, he wasn't a king, he was only a duke, and he owed his allegiance to the king of France. You can see how this relationship could get messy. Well, to make things even worse, at one point the French king died, And since all the nobility in Europe was related anyways, the king of England claimed that he had the right to the French throne. Well, the French were not too happy about this idea. And there you have it, the Hundred Years' War. The other problem was the papacy. Through Pope Innocent III, the papacy had gained huge power and influence in European politics. The idea was that spiritual authority was greater than physical authority. And while maybe both were necessary, the spiritual was always the more important. In fact, one medieval pope compared the authority of theirs to kings like the authority of the sun and the moon. He said that while both are necessary, just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, so the power of kings and princes are really just reflections of the spiritual power of the pope. Well, sadly, all this power quickly meant that the office of the pope was usually used for intrigue and politics, more than spiritual guidance or direction. And this problem was a problem for many decades, but it came to a head in 1378. Because after one pope died, two different popes were elected to replace him. And basically, half of Europe followed one pope, and the other half followed the other. 
So on one side you had England, Northern Italy, Hungary, Poland, and Scandinavia, and on the other was Southern Italy, France, and the Spanish kingdoms. This led to all sorts of problems. And the other problems were natural. One was called the Little Ice Age. It's a period when temperatures dropped in Europe, causing all sorts of food shortages. And the other problem you've certainly heard of before, the Black Death. This plague first hit Europe in 1347 and spread over the next several years. And plague would continue to strike periodically every few decades for centuries to come. So it's easy to see how the 1300s can be considered calamitous. Well, Christine was born into the middle of all these calamities. So Christine was born when Charles V ruled France. And Charles V was a good and capable ruler, and he took seriously knowledge and education in his realm. He founded libraries and commissioned books and translations of ancient works, and he strived to be surrounded by educated men. Christine's father was one of these educated men. He was well-respected in court, and he was both a physician and an astronomer. So Christine was born into a well-connected and intellectual family. From a young age, she loved to learn, study, and read. It was something her father encouraged, but her mother was opposed to. Her mother thought it was unfitting for a girl. But her father went out, and she learned Latin and had access to a huge library. She would read a great deal, though later in her life, Christine remembers, at this time, she wished she had studied more. In fact, she writes later, Youth, that tender enemy of good sense, will present even children with good minds from applying themselves to study, unless fear of punishment is brought to bear. And, as this was not done in my case, the desire to play won out over intelligence and inclination, so that I could not be constant in the labor of learning. When Christine was 15, she was betrothed to be married, and this was not unusual for the time. Her father chose a husband for her, who was 10 years older than her, a man named Etienne, who studied at the same university. While it was an arranged marriage, apparently it was a very happy one. The two were well suited for each other, and Christine describes him as a man prudent and wise, beloved of princes and all who worked with him. They had three children together, a daughter and two sons. Christine writes much later about this period, remembering her time with her young family as the happiest of her life. Christine's husband was appointed a royal secretary, which was a good position with a promising future. But then things started to go wrong. First, the good king of France, Charles V, died in 1380. And his son, Charles VI, was still a minor, and his uncles and other nobles began to struggle for control of the government. Seven years after that, Christine's father died in 1387. Christine loved her father dearly and mourned his death. She described him with praise, though she said his one flaw was giving too much money to the poor. But the biggest blow came two years later. In 1389, her husband was killed in another epidemic of the plague. He was 34, and Christine was just 25. They'd only been married for 10 years. This would have been tragic and devastating today, but it was even more so in the 14th century. Christine now found herself in charge of three children and a niece with almost no guidance or experience. She was without help of her father or husband. and She was totally unprepared to face the challenges of financially supporting a family or managing a family estate. It was common practice at the time for women not to deal with money, something Christine later writes about as being ridiculous. She says later, 
for it is customary for married men not to discuss financial matters in detail with their wives, a practice that often leads to great problems. As I have learned from experience, and does not make any sense when a woman is not stupid, but prudent and wise in her dealings. That's good advice. So listen to Christine and talk about financials with your spouse. Well, later Christine would write about these years and how difficult they were. Debtors to her husband would now not pay because he had died. And she tried to take them to court, but usually this was to no avail. Her husband's pension, which had been guaranteed by the king, was now ignored because of the chaos of competing factions in the royal court. Later, she wrote of the experience, saying, Dear Lord, what annoying remarks, what sly glances, what jokes I endured, so often from men bloated with wine and the flesh of ease, only to pretend that I had not, and turn away, or else cast off lightly and make believe I had not understood, lest I should compromise my case. May God reform all evil consciences, as I came across so many. Christine was understandably bitter about this whole affair. And on top of all of this, lastly, she invested much of her family's money into a merchant's adventure. But sadly, the merchant took her money and fled, claiming he was robbed, never to return again. This was a very dark night of the soul, and Christine later wrote in an autobiography describing the whole experience in detail. The first part speaks about how cruel fortune was to her. But when she reaches this part of the story, she speaks about how she came to grips with it all. Christine writes as if she meets philosophy itself as a person. Philosophy is a woman and one who talks with her directly. Lady Philosophy says this to Christine. For the love of God, let us go further and determine what you could be asking of God or blaming on fortune. I seem to perceive in you great ingratitude as well as any lack of recognition of the multiplicity of gifts and graces he has bestowed upon you, and continues to do so each day. For not only do you not thank him, you actually consider yourself wronged, as though you deserve to have not only a better lot, but indeed everything accordingly to your desire. To demonstrate the truth of my statement, call to mind the considerable gifts and blessings you have received from God in your unworthiness, and still receive today. Christine then goes on to list all her blessings, and here are her top three. 1. Being born of good and noble parents. 2. Being in good health, and I love this, as she describes herself, reasonably attractive in appearance. You know, you don't want to sell yourself too short. And 3. Good, God-fearing, and healthy children. She then also remembers her good schooling and all the knowledge she was able to receive, and the blessing of having a good and virtuous husband while he was alive. So Christine kept trying, and somehow she and her little family survived, thanks in great deal to her persistence and hard work. It's probable that at this time she got work as a copyist, one of the few professions open to women then. During this time, she began to write poetry. Well, eventually she would write poetry about a huge range of subjects, it began as a way for her to express her continued grief. One of her earliest poems we have goes like this. For five long years now do I mourn, so often with a tear-stained face, since the day he left me so forlorn and turned my joy into disgrace, my good wise man by death displaced, whose loss has brought to me such pain that I've wished as rage my joys replaced 
that I need not in this world remain. Christine never got over losing her husband, and her whole life she would never have another lover. Slowly, Christine started to discover that she greatly enjoyed writing poetry, and that she was quite good at it. She would write in different poetic styles and enjoying the challenges different styles presented. As we mentioned last episode, she was a great fan of Guillaume de Marchaud and would often play with the styles that he used. Before too long, her skill was noticed. One of the king's brothers, Louis of Orleans, had a wife who was a literary lover who discovered Christine. Christine then dedicated some of her work to this duke, and with some of his support, her work began to circulate. Her first great collection of poems is called 100 Ballads. Some poems in this are about widowhood. Some are about romance. Others are conversations between lovers, usually from the viewpoint of the female. However, it's important to note, most of these love stories and love poems do not end well. And Christine has the nickname of being the poet of love's ending. She's not nearly as interested in the more usual popular and happy part of love's beginning. Christine also began to write prose, on all sorts of different things. In all her writing, it's easy to see how educated she was, as she referenced and comments on a vast number of ancient and classical works. She knew histories, philosophies, and the writers of both Greek and Roman times, and of the earlier Middle Ages, including many of the people we've met in this podcast, such as Gregory the Great. But Christine was not only focused on the ideas of history, she would often marshal those writers against some of the common ideas of her time that she disagreed with. And usually she did this in very clever and concise ways. And one of the ideas of her time she especially hated was the idea of courtly love. Now we should probably talk a little bit about this phenomenon, as it is very popular among the medieval nobles at this time. Courtly love is basically the stereotypical knight and his lady story. It's all about the unattainable beauty to strive for. And that sounds nice and romantic, except usually the lady was another man's wife. And usually this lady was of higher status and an older woman. Think Lancelot and Guinevere. The nobility of France and much of Europe loved this idea of the unattainable lover or the forbidden romance, and there were all sorts of writings and songs about it. One of the most influential ones was called The Romance of the Rose. And while some people loved it, Christine thought it was downright stupid. She thought the idea ridiculous. And when it actually played out in real life, it usually ended up poorly for the man, but especially for the woman. By 1401, Christine was somewhat known in the French literary world. That year, a man named Jean de Montreux wrote a treatise in praise of the Romance of the Rose, which became quite popular among young intellectuals of Paris. Christine apparently couldn't take it anymore and decided she had to respond to it head-on. This led to a literary exchange called The Quarrel of the Rose. Jean de Montiel and a pair of brothers, Pierre and Gontier Cole, supported courtly love in the Romance of the Rose, while Christine and the Chancellor of the University of Paris, a guy named Jean Gerson, were against it. Now Gerson is a fascinating figure on his own, and we will get back to him in a later episode. But between these two groups, there was a literary showdown. But as soon as it began, it became clear that the pro-courtly love group was totally unprepared for Christine's critiques. The public exchange showed Christine's literary elegance and intelligence, and it blew the opposition out of the water. 
She wrote poems and allegorical stories, and she held up the virtue of true faithfulness and tried to expose the hypocrisy of these over-idealized romantics. The whole event made Christine even more well-known, and it resolved her to write more about what true love between men and women should actually be. The best known of her works stem from these debates. They are The Book of the City of Ladies and The Book of the Three Virtues. Christine continued to write, with some support from Louis of Orleans, although that partnership was getting worse all the time. Louis was a terrible adulterer, and his exploits were getting worse and worse. So Christine, now a champion of virtue, and Louis, the flagrant adulterer, did not make a great artist and patron duo. Plus, Louis had promised to educate Christine's son, also named Jean, but he'd flaked out and never came through with it. But the relationship did have one benefit. Christine was able to meet an English duke named John Montague. John was very impressed by Christine's work, and they struck up a friendship, and he offered to educate her son Jean, who he would take back to England and pay for all his expenses. Christine was incredibly thankful, and things again looked up for the family. But sadly, yet again, disaster struck. Not long after Jean had gone with John to England, John was murdered in courtly intrigue. So now Jean was in England without help. Thankfully, he was able to get back home before too long, but it did scare Christine something terrible. It also greatly devastated Christine to lose another friend, and to lose someone she had hoped could mentor her son. I should also mention Christine's children. So of her three children, one sadly did die in childhood, but her daughter would have a successful career. Christine's daughter, like her mother, was also very intelligent, but she decided to do something that many of the women we've seen in this podcast did. She joined a convent. And she joined one of very high prestige that included members of the French royal family. And thankfully for Christine, it was one that Christine could occasionally visit. While I'm sure she missed her daughter, she was very proud of her daughter for making this decision. Christine's son, Jean, would also end up with a reasonably successful career as a royal secretary. But sadly, he would die at only the age of 35 like his father, but not before having his own son, who would become a writer and historiographer like his grandmother Christine. But that is much later. Christine would continue to write on all sorts of different topics for the rest of her life. But one of her favorite things was writing about virtuous women and why women were important and valuable to society. She dedicated several of her works to the Queen of France, and that included a great deal of writings on Queen Blanche. Remember, that's Louis IX's mother we mentioned from episode 11. Christine was a big fan of both St. Louis and Blanche. She wrote on all sorts of other topics too, including even tactics and morals of medieval warfare. In fact, in one treatise, she explains in depth the common naval practices of the time, and Christine explains it all very well. She was familiar with an ancient Roman military writer, and she explores his thoughts and how things have changed since that time. And some of the tactics might surprise you. For instance, she says, It's good to have a great supply of pots full of soft soap, which can be hurled onto the enemy ship, with the result that sailors cannot stand up, but slip and fall into the water if they are near the ship's edge. Boy, that makes medieval naval warfare sound almost fun but I promise you it was much more brutal than backyard pool parties. And the next thing Christine mentions is throwing acid on them so that they can't see and are distracted from fighting. 
not so fun anymore. Christine also wrote on the immorality and evil of attacking peasants who were not involved in the fight during military campaigns, which was something that happened far too often in the medieval world. She says this, What honor can accrue to a prince to kill, overrun, and seize people who have never borne arms, nor could make any use of them, or poor innocent people who do nothing else but till land and watch over animals? In truth, it is right that the valiant and good gentlemen at arms must take every precaution not to destroy the poor and simple folk, nor suffer them to be tyrannized or mistreated, for they are Christians and not Saracens. And if I have said that pity is due to some, remember that not less is due to others. Those who engage in warfare may be hurt, but the humble and peaceful should be shielded from their force. She even writes about how you shouldn't hold traveling students hostage for ransom, which makes sense, since her own son was in a similar situation at one point. But from all these different topics, Christine is often remembered as a moralist because she would challenge her culture to do better and to actually live out their faith. She was not afraid to point out the hypocrisy and injustice she saw all around her, and that meant one of her great focuses was the treatment of women. As we will see, she was very practical and still held firmly to the idea that men and women were created differently. However, very often she saw women being taken advantage of and mistreated much like she had been herself when she was a widow. In 1415, Christine moved to the convent of her daughter, though did not become a nun. France had just suffered a devastating defeat from the English at the Battle of Agincourt, so Christine had to leave Paris, where she'd been residing for a long time, for somewhere safer. Christine lived most of the rest of her life there, but she did get some final excitement. Christine, before she died, was able to see the rise of Joan of Arc. This thrilled Christine as it united two of her great passions, the love of France and women being seen as strong and important. Joan of Arc was both of these things at once. Christine's final work was a poem praising Joan of Arc in 1429. Christine died the next year in 1430 when she was 66 after a bout of illness. Her work would continue to be popular and published in France until the 1500s, but she was largely forgotten until the 20th century when her work would be revived by several scholars, including Charity Cannon Willard, whom I got most of my material from. But now I'd like to look a little more in-depth to Christine's most famous work, The Book of the City of Ladies. It was an excerpt from this book that first introduced me to Christine. It has been described as part guidebook, part survival manual for women living in the Middle Ages. Christine writes some for women of all stations in life, rich or poor, and sacred or secular. Remember, in medieval terms, sacred and secular means you have taken a holy vow or you haven't. Related to that, Christine is a little bit unique in the women of the faithful forebears, as she is the first secular woman to have her own episode. Leoba, Rosvitha, and Hildegard had all taken such vows of some sort or another, and they were considered to have sacred callings. Christine never took such vows, so she was considered secular. Well, in one section of the Book of the City of Ladies, Christine describes her view on these different callings, using the very popular tale of Mary and Martha. The story of Mary and Martha is found in Luke 10, and it speaks of how two sisters greet Jesus. Martha is busy making sure everything is prepared for Jesus, while Mary simply sits with Jesus to listen to him. Martha gets angry at Mary for not helping, but Jesus tells Martha that Mary has chosen what is better. Most people at the time 
took this story to represent the sacred callings of monks and nuns, who dedicate their life to God. Secular people were like Martha, who did the work of this world. So they believed that those who made the choice of Mary did the superior thing. While Christine, for the most part, agrees with this, she still places a great deal of value on whatever station in life people find themselves. In this way, she's a bit of a forerunner to the modern idea of vocation, the idea that everyone can serve God in different ways. Christine says this, God does not command anyone to leave everything to follow him, that is, only for those who wish to pursue the very most ideal life. Each person can be saved in his own station in life. Have there not been a great host of kings and princes who are saints in paradise? Like King Louis of the kings of France, and several others who did not retire from the world, but reigned and possessed their lordship at the pleasure of God? So to Christine, the life of a nun or monk may be best, but there is still great value in every job. And for those without ability to become a nun or a monk, they should try hard to, as she says, at least strike a happy medium, as St. Paul counsels, and take as much as you can from both lives according to your ability. She goes on to explain how this can be done for noble women, middle-class women, and servants and chambermaids. She has specific advice for each. For noble women, they should be patient and humble, forgiving, remembering that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the least. And, as Christine says, if she finds out that some words have been said against her, as happens even to the best of ladies, she should nevertheless not be perturbed about it, nor should she regard it as a great crime, but pardon it easily. For middle-class women, she says that they should encourage and be familiar with the work of their husbands. She says, besides encouraging others, the wife herself should be involved in the work to the extent that she knows all about it, so that she may know how to oversee his workers if her husband is absent, and to reprove them if they do not do well. And, she says, they should prevent their husbands from spending all their money on taverns. She says this, by treating him kindly, she should protect him as well as she can from this. It is said that there are three things that drive a man from his home, a quarrelsome wife, a smoky fireplace, and a leaking roof. For working-class women, Christine says that they should go to church when they're able, but that they are not held to the same standards as noble or middle-class women. They should try to fast on the appropriate days, but it is understandable if they can't, as sometimes they need to simply eat when they're able. But they should also not use their stations as an excuse to avoid any responsibility. She goes on also then to warn against embezzling, and taking advantage of employers. And this is just a little taste of this great work. As with all of Christine's writings, what makes it so charming is her straightforward honesty. She's never afraid to say what she thinks, and she's never afraid to be open with her own failings or trials. And her greatest goal was for women to be treated with respect and dignity. She also wanted to prepare women for the hardships that they had to face. Lastly, she wanted to make men aware of the troubles that women faced, especially widows. So Christine, at least in my mind, is all around pretty awesome. She experienced pretty devastating tragedy, but was able to persevere through it all. And she was able to accomplish pretty magnificent things. So that's all I have on Christine. I hope you enjoyed learning about her as much as I enjoyed writing it and learning about her as well. Now, these last three episodes have been in France, and you've had to suffer through me mispronouncing French names and places. 
Well, thankfully, next time we're going to go somewhere else. Next episode, we will go to England, and we're going to learn about another character of the 1300s, slightly more famous than the last two, a man named John Wycliffe. He also had to deal with the calamities of his day, but specifically, John dealt with the corruption of the church. As always, please like my Facebook page, and rate me and review me on iTunes or Stitcher. And the reviews are great. If you want to just sit down and write it, I would be most appreciative. I know you've been meaning to for a while. Well, just get it over with and do it today. Also, I'm looking to make some stickers and t-shirts for the podcast at some point, so if that's something you're interested in, please let me know so I can gauge interest. And, as always, tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.